Good morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Friday, the 27th of March, and we are still in lockdown. The global economic picture worsens. Unemployment rate predictions in the United States rocketed. 3.2 million have registered for a claim. The G20 make a declaration that they'll do whatever it takes, reminiscent of Mario Draghi when he said he'd do whatever it takes to save the euro. £210 million have been contributed to international vaccine finding by the UK, an unalloyed good in times like this. But sadly, yesterday saw the largest daily death figures for the UK yet recorded at 115 people. In the UK, a few important things have now come to light. The actual text of the legal regulations on the lockdown have been published, but unfortunately on the vital issue of who should and who shouldn't be working, they're still a bit unclear. Like some of Johnson's statements, they concentrate not on who's a key or a critical worker, but order you to stay at home unless your work really cannot be done at home. This is, I think, a key failing of these regulations because certainly at the moment we've got people working in places where there's likely to be significant transmission and where it's really hard to maintain social distancing. Places like construction sites where workers, some of whom are often at least technically self-employed, are still commanded by their employer to come in to work. Can we really say that all construction work is critical right now? I wonder. There has been some confusion over the way COVID-19 deaths are being reported, how and when figures are issued, as Public Health England seem to have changed the time of day at which they're reporting. There's been a good deal of confusion and some, I think, unwarranted panic over this, really not helped by the initial response from a source to the BBC, which was that it was something to do with GDPR. Now, that doesn't seem very plausible, though it has become a catch-all excuse for businesses and corporations uh, across uh, all of Europe. But I don't think there's anything going on there that's particularly shifty. It does genuinely seem like a problem in confirming, checking and collating the number of deaths has then required a shift in the way that they're reported. No, the real problem here, both on critical workers or key workers, and the way that that story over reporting of deaths was handled, actually lie in government communications, including wherever that unhelpful response about GDPR and data protection came from. In a moment like this one, we need serious, clear and regular communication from government about what's going on. We're already operating in something of a trust deficit when it comes to politics, so anything that squanders trust or that looks evasive can be, frankly, pretty dangerous. And what's more, it gives sucker to the kind of atmosphere that sees the circulation of weird, usually rather pixelated graphics on WhatsApp, often from your strange uncle, which explains that in fact all of this is really caused by 5G or lizard people or somehow Greta Thunberg. But the government information problem is even more basic than that. I think it's always important to remember that uh, the majority of people are not pathological political obsessives, poisoned by a constant drip feed of news and policy shifts. Now that means the finer details of government orders, like where and when you're supposed to socially distance and how and from whom, uh, whether you can go over to your boyfriend's house or go for a walk in a national park, or if you're a Tory, go to the second home in the countryside with your COVID-19 positive husband, these things are harder to make clear. The press isn't deeply interested in repeating them either, not least because once you know them, they're boring to repeat. But they are essential. Perversely, in an electoral situation, this was great for the Conservatives. Get Brexit done, big promises, little detail, jolly hockey sticks and all that. But in a situation where policy details matter, the question they face is how to get people to pay attention to the little stuff, which now actually makes the difference. 
Maybe it isn't so significant. Polling as well as anecdotal experience suggests people are mostly trying to stick to the guidelines, even if imperfectly. Now, of course, people over-report their own virtue to pollsters, and there's still relatively little we know about how this virus really works and how effective measures are if they're sloppily carried out. We'll see a stress test of that this weekend, I think. But it seems weird to me that the government hasn't attempted to really put answers to these questions out there in really basic and accessible forms, a kind of coronavirus AMA, maybe a helpline. Aren't they supposed to have mysterious comms genuses at number 10? There's a flip side to all this as well. Uh, And it's to do with the balance between these measures and the economy. And from down here, it looks like they're attempting to impose these measures in such a way as to try to minimise the economic contraction. And perhaps that's obvious. Perhaps it's also important to underline how much the economy is still part of the calculation here. It's why the criterion in law is not whether your work is essential to the management of the pandemic, but whether or not it really cannot be done from home. Look, it's not wrong, of course, for governments to care about the economy. It would be pretty strange not to. I think it's worth bearing in mind over the next few weeks that it has remained a significant part of the calculation in the way that these regulations are actually being made. The major news, though, is also economic, and that's Rishi Sunak's announcement yesterday uh, of a support package for self-employed workers and another enormous intervention into the economy, effectively part three of a budget he began delivering a few weeks ago. That matches previous commitments to employed workers to back 80% of their salary, uh, with a similar similar calculation based on the past three years of accounts for the self-employed. Now, the left tends to look for holes in things like this, and we'll do that in a second. But I think we should pause, step back, and contemplate what it means for a Tory Chancellor to be doing this, and at this scale. It is a seismic shift in Tory politics, and I don't buy the idea that it can simply be shrugged off in a few months, or at most a few years' time. They're now going to be setting a very, very different course through this Parliament. It's no longer a Brexit government, it's a pandemic government. But there are still questions. Of course, Sunak's measures, as every time they've been presented, are accompanied with him stressing that he'll do more as needed. It's curious, though, that he still hasn't addressed the question of renters financially at all, many of whom are currently worrying about meeting their rent, whatever their employment status. I should say that the courts look like they're pausing all eviction proceedings this morning uh, just on that. But nor though yesterday was there any raise to statutory sick pay or access to universal credit, which remains stuck at five weeks for a deeply insufficient amount. Why no moves on those benefits? Because of fear they might stick. But there are questions about the package specifically. The payments which are due won't come until June. And that, I think, is the most immediate and most dangerous problem for many. There is an immediate cash flow crisis which promises for the future can't really do much about, nor do promises that one might be able to defer some tax payments until 2021. They don't do much either, because who knows what anything will look like by then. Would you want that debt? And there are questions about those who fall through the net on this, which, despite what Sunak suggested in his speech, would include some of those who are really struggling or who are trying to balance multiple jobs, including those as carers. Now, look, I'm glad the government is doing this, but I'm not sure it's going to be enough. Uh, And it's hard to buy Sunak's complaint that it's unbelievably difficult to order and manage or um, really his stress on fairness here. In fact, the bank accounts of nearly everyone affected here uh, are known to the government. And an emergency payment now, for instance, that you might claw back in taxation where it's appropriate at the higher end, perhaps next year, that wouldn't be immensely difficult to achieve. So why not? 
Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is just at the level of politics. Universal provision like that is still ideologically repellent to many Tories. There is a fear that universalism like that might be a hard habit to shake. But the other is the hope to put as much of the economy as possible into a kind of cryogenic storage in the hope that it can be recovered from the other end of the crisis and things can go more or less back to normal. Now, I think that's quite unlikely. But what's worse is that I fear that although the Treasury intervention really is huge, and it is, and we should accept and acknowledge that, the reluctance around questions of universality and the delays to payments until June mean that it won't be sufficient to deal with the crisis, partly because it will be too late. Anyway, you can hear me talk a bit more about the economics of the crisis and the politics that emerge from that on Navarra FM later today with the inestimable James Meadway. But I want to point you also to the work uh, that Caroline Malloy has been doing over at Open Democracy, where she's co-editor on the need for that kind of universal safety net. I'll pop a link in the notes uh, to an article that she's written there. And you should go over there, I think, and sign their campaign petition. And I think for me, the thing I worry about with this new package is this. One of the reasons Sunak was under pressure was that although the self-employed contain a lot of people really struggling, if you look at the income distribution, uh, it also contains a sizable chunk of the loud, the vocal, the entitled, those in media, as well as some of the Tories' new voters, and so on and so on. Uh, My fear is that the package splits those people off from the others who have to try to get by uh, on universal credit or who fall through the holes in the provision, basically removing the arguments about universality from the political field because the most agitated and most vocal bit of that constituency has been placated. We'll see. But my last line on this, a universal crisis, and this crisis touches on everything and everyone, demands universal protection. That's it. All right, we're going into the weekend and of course we're all going to be at home. So perhaps now is a good time to read a good book. The Navarra Media team has put together a few book recommendations and those are up in an article on the website. Of course, I'll put that in the links as well. And I asked our team just to say a little bit about one of the books that they chose. Okay, so I know I'm cheating a bit by recommending a trilogy, but you've got a lot of time on your hands and with the final book clocking in at about 900 pages you are not going to run out of material before we've even made it out of the foothills of the lockdown. Hilary Mantel's Thomas Cromwell trilogy starting with Wolf Hall then Bring Up the Bodies ending with The Mirror and the Light is probably the finest political education you could receive short of being trained firsthand by Machiavelli himself. It's seen through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell, who was Henry VIII's chief fixer during the chaotic early years of the English Reformation. And it's probably the richest character work I've ever read in my life. There's something of Stringer Bell in Thomas Cromwell, a bit of a cerebral bruiser. He's the son of a blacksmith, and he spends three books taking both scalpel and sledgehammer to the old blood of Tudor England. He's by turns gentle and monstrous, sculpting a new social order out of the ruins of the king's marital catastrophes. And it's simply thrilling to live history from behind his eyes. There are, of course, incredible cameos from Thomas More in the first book, uh, Cardinal Wolsey. Um, Lord Leal is particularly interesting his wife who is obsessed with puppies also great um but the character study of 
Anne Boleyn, both brittle and ambitious, just fascinating. Uh, Hilary Mantel's research is utterly impeccable. Uh, if you want an extra read-along treat, you should take a look at George Cavendish's The Life and Death of Cardinal Wolsey, and you'll be able to see where she got a lot of her inspiration from. So definitely crack open Hilary Mantel. The late great Terry Pratchett said, fantasy is an exercise bicycle for the mind. It might not take you anywhere, but it turns up the muscles that can. I go further to say that since capitalist realism attempts to dull our senses and cauterize our imagination, sci-fi and fantasy are necessary efforts in imagining the world otherwise. They are engines of empathy and they are the first pass of transformation. And as coronavirus warps our norms and buckles our economy, as the disaster capitalists loom to carve up the wreckage in their favor, there is no more urgent a time to start that task of imagination. And for me, there's no better place to start than with The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, a book which is unnervingly prescient in how it precisely carves out the contours of modern eco-politics. And perhaps most importantly, it's just a great story. Civilization has buckled under the effects of climate change and a new breed of tyrants triumph in the carnage as water runs scarce and racism runs rampant. After her community is destroyed, a young woman born with the taboo condition of hyper-empathy sets out on a refugee pilgrimage north, determined to create a better world with the help of her own new religion, named Earthseed. Octavia Butler's beautiful, haunting, daring Afrofuturist masterpiece is a lesson in the hard work of hope and the radical act of surviving despite everything. As it became clear to me a couple of weeks ago that we'd probably have to spend a significant part of the spring, summer, maybe even much of the year indoors, I thought it wise to write a reading list of recommended reading uh, for people that follow me on, on Twitter or who follow Navarra Media. That's posted on luxurycommunism.com. There's 20 books. Some are perhaps predictable. Marx, Capital, uh, chapters one and two in particular. But I do also focus on media. And one book in particular, I think, really merits uh, your listeners' attention. And that is Stick It Up Your Punter, The Rise and Fall of the Sun, written by Peter Chippendale and Chris Horry. You can probably get hold of this for about 50p, one pound uh, online. And it's a very much recommended read. Offers an incredible overview of changes in the Sun newspaper under Rupert Murdoch after the late 1960s all the way through to 1919. It's particularly in the 1980s where you see some incredibly extraordinary and unprecedented events taking place in what was then the most read newspaper in the country. The way it covered the Falklands War, the way it covered the miners' strike, the way it, uh, of course, treated striking workers uh, during the whopping dispute, and of course how it covered Hillsborough, offered snapshots of an increasingly outlandish, unhinged, often amoral journalistic operation. Uh, and I just want to pull up a quote here that might sound like hyperbole on my end. This was in response to John Blake, who uh, oversaw the bizarre column in the newspaper. He pitched to Kelvin McKenzie, who was the editor after Larry Lamb in the 1980s, uh, the idea of a feature on legalising marijuana, to which McKenzie is reported to have said, You must be fucking joking, he screamed, poking Blake in the chest. You just don't understand the readers, do you? McKenzie wrapped out his picture of the Sun's older reader. 
He's the bloke you see in the pub, a right old fascist, wants to send back the wogs by his poxy council house. He's afraid of the unions, afraid of the Russians, hates the queers and weirdos and drug dealers. He doesn't want to hear about this stuff, he finally yelled, veins bulging. He gave the entire desk a bollocking on its duty to know, quote, the old fascist so well they could predict his every thought. When you can imagine that bloke saying, eh, I tried that marijuana last night, not bad, then we'll write about it, and not before. It's that kind of extraordinary passage and insight into the Sun newspaper, which I think makes this book very much worth a read. A profoundly important institution in a period when Britain was recast, not just economically and politically under the Thatcher years, but also culturally. And of course, the Sun played a more important role doing that than almost anywhere else. And one of mine. That's the Antigone a near two and a half thousand year old ancient Greek play and still one of the most perfect explorations of political conflict, commitment and motivation that I know. That play starts with Antigone's brother dead, having led a failed insurrection against the city. His body lies unburied and unmourned outside the city. Her uncle, Creon, who now rules, declares that he's not to be buried or mourned on pain of death. But Antigone believes the divine law obliges her to mourn and to bury her brother. So she sets out to break Creon's law. Now, the play shifts as you look at it. It's, of course, about politics and motivation, and Antigone's own motivation seems to shift around a lot. But it's also about rigidity and extremism and mercy and whether mercy has a role in politics. Uh, or perhaps it's also about the long working out of a curse. Antigone is also Oedipus's daughter. Um, perhaps it's also about Antigone as an unmarried woman uh, and an epicleros, an orphan heiress who refuses to marry uh, a woman out of her place. And the question really through the play is, is it just to break an unjust law? And perhaps the other reason I chose it as well is just this. I don't think the classics should be the preserve of people like Boris Johnson. I think they're too important, too beautiful and too too interesting to be left to them. Okay, that's it for this week. But here are two requests for this weekend. One, if you have an account, pop over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. That's really honestly very, very, very helpful to us and one of the best things you can do for us. And it should only take a couple of seconds. More importantly, perhaps... I want to hear stories of social solidarity. There's been a lot of fear and panic this week, so I want to hear about the other side of things. Get in touch with me on james at navaramedia.com just to share those, and thanks to those of you who've gotten in touch already. Now, as the week closes, some thanks. Uh, My thanks to 65 Days of Static, who provided the music for this show. Like many bands, uh, they're facing uncertain days after having to cancel their tour, so perhaps you should pop over to their band camp and pick up their music. My thanks also to Gary McQuiggan, part of the Navarra Media team, who has been an essential help to me in getting all this up and running on the internet. And my thanks to the team as a whole for, well, everything, despite the revelation that someone in, uh, someone drank uh, the bottle of champagne we'd been keeping in the office for a special occasion. That's a whodunit to be solved after the lockdown's over. All right, that's it. I am James Butler, and this is The Burner, and I'll see you after the weekend. Take care. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.